0: This morning I'll be reading our scripture. It comes from Luke 4, 1 through 13, from the English Standard Version. You can follow along on the screen. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The word of the Lord.
1: What are you going to do with your $200 now, Dad? Now that the rains are coming? (sighs) People money, Wade. That drought left me in the hole. Well, what do you think about double that amount? You can pay your debts, buy a 100 more cows, build a new barn. Well, how you reckon I'm gonna do that? Just lay down your gun, let me walk out the door. It's worth $400 to me. Is that what you reckon my price is? No. No, I reckon it's a thousand. $1,000 That was ten times that amount on Butterfield's coach Oh yeah You want my cut down? Uh-huh. It's all yours Isn't that kind of reckless you wait? Seeing as uh, you're so sure that uh, your crew's coming to get you? Well, they're coming down Sure as God's vengeance they're coming But I just like to do things easy Imagine what you could do with a thousand dollars, Dan. You could hire a couple of ranch hands, you boys could go to school, grow up smart. What about Alice? She would be the proud wife of a bona fide Arizona rancher. All you got to do is say yes.
2: <laughs> well,
1: would you give me a banknote? Wait or maybe you'd be kind enough to make a deposit for me? Cash. Well you, you tell me wait, how would I account for for that amount of money? What would I tell people when I spend it? That uh that you got the jump on me, you escaped and somehow I got a fortune. Hmm? <laughs> how dumb you think people are nobody needs to know you know what you do me a favor don't talk to me for a while you mean we're still not friends no
2: no we're not
3: Temptation, this is an interesting thing. You count the cost. Walk away. Maybe take the bait. Maybe you get caught. Face the repercussions. Maybe you don't get caught and you feel like you've gotten away with it. It can be as simple as a piece of candy at the grocery store. Or it can be living a complete double life. Either way, eventually, somewhere down the road, you're going to be alone in the dark, wondering, was this really who I wanted to be? Was this really where I was headed? When I found out this was the scripture that um, would would be the beginning of, of Lent... And this would be kind of the next time I was able to be with you. I thought to myself, well, the obvious thing to do here is to look at the life of Christ and say, Jesus was able to withstand the temptation of the devil, and so we should be able to do the same. So let's buckle down and discipline ourselves and defeat the evil one. But somehow, that feels a little bit hollow. Because for all the years we've been trying to do that, we find ourselves coming up short. And actually, this box that we put ourselves in to try to manage our sin really can't work, right? So we decide, I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to think that. I'm not going to say those things. I'm not going to do those things anymore. And the box gets smaller and smaller. And we know the cycle, right? So we, we fail, feel like crap about it, wallow in it, repent, ask for forgiveness, get up and decide to redouble our efforts so we don't fall again. But the cycle somehow keeps repeating itself. And somewhere along the line, this doesn't seem to be like the life that Jesus was offering. Somewhere this life of sin management doesn't feel like freedom. It's like we accept Jesus as our personal Savior so that we can have an eternity in heaven with God, and yet there's always this dark cloud over our head because we keep failing. And so we walk around somewhat guilty no matter what we do. That seems to me more like the Old Testament mosaic while than it does the freedom that Christ seems to offer. So I guess a sermon or a talk on Sin management and defeating the devil because Jesus did it, just somehow comes up short. I know a lot about the cloud. When I was about eight years old, my, my family, we traveled around the country. We lived in a trailer, and we'd park the trailer behind churches that my dad was booked at to preach in. And some of you know parts of this story. But he'd come in and he'd preach like week-long revival meetings, maybe two weeks sometimes. So he kind of had the, the system where it was every night thing. I spent my early childhood in church every single day. And so he'd kind of have this week-long series of messages that would culminate with a lot of people coming to know the Lord. But these were pretty grown-up messages, for an eight-year-old to hear over and over again. So every night I'm hearing how my sin is putting Jesus back up on the cross or what will it take to bring you to God or hell and burning and all this kind of stuff. And so um, I got saved a lot. So two or three times a week I'm down at the altar accepting Christ. But in in my young mind, I'm beginning to reason, okay, there has to be a point. At which God goes, enough. I've had it with you. Like I'm not forget. Don't come down here anymore. I'm not dealing with you anymore. And I, I, I began to to reason. There's got to be a number. I was afraid to ask my parents what that number might be because I knew what they'd ask is, "What kind of sins are we talking about here, son?" And so I remember we pulled into a church. I I thought about it all week, and I can't remember where it was. We pulled into a church, and there was this elderly kind of deacon-type man. He wasn't the pastor, but he had led us into the church so that Dad could set up for services and we could kind of get prepared for the revival meeting. And and I, for some reason, felt like he might know the answer. And so I walked up to him, and, and I asked him, How many times will the Lord forgive us our sins? And he said, well, son, the Bible says to forgive 70 times 7. So the Lord will forgive you 490 times. <laughs> it was not what I was hoping to find out. So I spent the rest of the day processing the fact that I'm sure I have already used half of those. And I'm 8 So even if I slow things down, redouble my efforts to be good, and ask forgiveness less, the rapture has to happen by the time I'm 25 or I'm dead. So I'm working through all of this, and I'm thinking, okay, I have to get saved less. And I have to ask Jesus to forgive me less that's, There's no choice It's going to be Russian roulette But I'm going to kind of make these a package deal I'm going to wait for like four days Let them all build up And take this one package and get forgiveness all at once Because that's going to make me live longer And so, so I do that and I'm thinking to myself Because I'm hearing all this end times talk And again that's a hard thing to process for an eight year old so I'm thinking to myself, all right, that's a dangerous thing to do because I could the rapture could come and I could be found in my sins. But that will send me into the great tribulation and I can get my head cut off and still be with Jesus. That's a better choice than running out of the 490 and going to hell. All right? So this is... F- funny and it's kind of sad and pathetic for an eight-year-old to kind of process through this and finally my dad figured this out and I remember the night he took me by the hand we walked down the road he explained to me that Jesus would always forgive my sins and you know that was the end of that but I stressed about this for a long time. This is kind of a a large example of a minor way that we live all the time when we're trying to live a life of sin management. We always have the dark cloud over our head. We're always going to be judged at some point. We're always going to be found when we really need the Lord in sin somehow. And that just won't work. So temptation and looking at Jesus and the life that he led and the temptation that, that he dealt with, Isn't a new thing. This concept of temptation goes all the way back to the beginning, right? We understand the fall of mankind. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're talking to the serpent. The serpent offers an alternative life. And it's not true, but it's got some truth in it. And that's the way temptation works it's this neon blinking sign promising life. There's enough truth in it that we take the bait only to find out we've bit a plastic apple, basically. It never delivers on what it promises. But this isn't a new thing. And it's interesting that the first account that we ever have of temptation, the first time mankind deals with an alternative choice, it's such a powerful thing that the very first time man deals with it, they fall. They fall for it. So this is our story Nothing's really changed here. I've struggled with that a bit in my life. I've, I've wondered, okay, God created a, a perfect utopia. And he created meticulously this world and then meticulously created mankind, breathed his breath of life into him, gave a portion of himself to this man in order that there would be a relationship And it's all perfect. And then he sticks this tree in the garden and says, it's all yours. Just don't eat that. And I don't know exactly how it's been in your life, but when somebody says, all this is yours, but don't do that, that's the one thing I'm going and standing and looking at, right? So why did he bait them that way so that they wouldn't be able to handle the perfection and that they were going to fall anyway? And I've struggled with that in my life. I'm married to my wife, Jill. She's also married to me. I love her. She loves me. We love our family. We love the community that God's planted us in to serve. We love what God's doing in our lives. I'm committed to her. She's committed to me. I don't expect this. But she could leave tomorrow. She could leave us all tomorrow. Or I could leave tomorrow. I'm not planning on it. But I could do it. I could wake up tomorrow and decide I've had it with everybody. And I'm out of here. And I'm going to go somewhere where there's mountains. And I've had it with you all. I could do that. I'm not going to do that, but I could do that, right? And isn't that what gives the context to the love that we have and the community that we share? We know that there's the possibility that we could walk away, and yet we choose to stay. And doesn't that bring true love to the focus if there's no possibility of anything else then there's no understanding of what it is we actually have so we've chosen to stay together because who we are together is greater than who we are apart and we love each other but we understand that we could walk away we understand what that would look like and what that would do if we didn't have that understanding we wouldn't know any better So I've come to believe that mankind had to have a way out. There had to be a way out to have free will. He had to have a plan B basically as an an option in order for him to understand what he had. And the sad thing is he had perfection and he chose to opt out. Many of us have stories in our lives of betrayal. Maybe we've been betrayed before. Maybe we've been the betrayer. Maybe we've dealt with a bit of both in our lives. So to some degree, we all understand what that feels like when you begin to realize what's happened. The shock, right? The, the, the feeling of falling, the sense of Vertigo, your mind trying to wrap itself around the fact that perhaps the person you gave your heart to, your love to, your trust to, everything that you are to, and this life of, uh, of comfort and stability that you thought that you had is gone. It's a shocking moment, and it reels us. It sets us back. Betrayal is something that rocks us to the absolute core of our essence. It goes as deep as anything can possibly go. To the degree that we have loved and given ourselves to something, it's to that degree that we're shattered. So to some degree, we we know what that's like and so I wonder what it would have been like for God when he heard the crunch of the fruit. Here, he has created perfection and breathed life and carefully crafted mankind and given his Love and his passion to this creation and even given this creature a part of himself and that is a choice to, cho- to choose other than him so that there really is a context for true love. Here he's given this and they've, they've chosen that he's not enough. What must that have been like? When we begin to fall in love, a lot of interesting physiological things happen to us. Right? Our, our adrenaline starts to pump. So when we're near that person, our heart starts to beat faster. We start to sweat. There's this thing called dopamine in our brains that begins to make us feel desire and the promise of pleasure. Pleasure. Our serotonin levels kind of get wacky, and we can't sleep, and we can't get this person out of our minds, right? There's chemicals like oxytocin and vasopressin, and listen to all the other chemicals I can rattle off as if I know what I'm talking about. I learned this while researching what we're talking about today because temptation leads to betrayal, There can't be really any betrayal without love and care. And so they're all wrapped up together. And what I've learned is that in the spiritual realm, falling to the tempter is spiritual betrayal. It just doesn't work any other way. So, in researching what betrayal looks like, it's hard to discuss it in physiological terms. There are certainly hormones and chemicals that, that go into the system immediately when a person feels shock. And yet, so I'm describing the chemicals that go through our bodies when we feel the sense of love. It's not easy to go to a person who's just found out that their spouse has actually been living a double life and has given themselves to someone else and you've just found out. You can't go to that person who's gasping for breath and doesn't know what to do with themselves and say, listen, listen, listen. Your adrenal glands are pumping a little more than they should right now. Right? You got some hormones and some things going on that are out of balance. If you'll just sit down and wait this out, it's all going to balance out. That's all this is. That's all this is is a chemical reaction. Right? That doesn't speak to what betrayal feels like at all, does it? So in order to find the essence of what a betrayal feels like, we have to go to things like paintings or music or poetry to describe what's really going on. We have to go to art to describe what's at the deepest core of what we're sensing And so, as I'm chasing the research of this down, I find myself at a Broken Hearts website where people have posted anonymous poems. And I want to share a pathetic poem with you this morning. This is called Love Hurts by Anonymous. You told me that you loved me. Why did you leave me to cry in the cold? You swore this time was different. Why does that line seem so old? You told me I was the only one who could make you feel that way. You told me that you cared about me, so why didn't you stay? All the nights you laid with me alone in the dark in my bed Now I finally realize You were just messing with my head Love is such a powerful word And a word people often misuse Something they take for granted Something they beat and abuse My wounds run deep inside me There's blood all over the place I think I've really lost it this time I'm ashamed to show my face This is a pathetic piece of poetry for sure But I have no doubt that the person that wrote it felt that way Listen to this ancient Near Eastern poem It doesn't have the same cadence It's a little more complex Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into marriage with you, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put "'sandals of fine leather on you. "'I dressed you in fine linen "'and covered you with costly garments. "'I adorned you with jewelry. "'I put bracelets on your arms "'and a necklace around your neck, "'and I put a ring on your nose, "'earrings on your ears, "'and a beautiful crown on your head. "'So, you were adorned with gold and silver. "'Your clothes were of fine linen.' And costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil, and the finest flour. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. Your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a you lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his you took some of your garments to make gaudy places where you carried on your promiscuity you went to him and he possessed you you also took the fine jewelry I gave you the jewelry made of my gold and silver and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them and you took your embroidered clothes and put them on them. You offered my oil and incense to them. Also, the food I provided for you, the flour, olive oil, and honey I gave to you to eat, you offered to them. That is what happened. Or this ancient poem. She is not my wife. I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert. Turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I'll just go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. So I'll block her path with thorns. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she'll say, I'll just go back to my husband. For I was better off then than now. She's not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, Who lavished on her the silver and gold? So I'll take away the grain when it ripens and the wine when it's ready. I'll take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I'll expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. these poems or prophetic utterances come from the Bible. The first from Ezekiel chapter 16, the second from Hosea chapter 2. Apparently, God can feel betrayed in the same way we can. Apparently, when He created us and gave us power to choose, the freedom to opt out, he made himself somehow emotionally available. He's not aloof in this at all. Apparently, he feels it like we do. This is the first Sunday of Lent. Lent is a season of personal reflection. A season where oftentimes we find ourselves laying something down. And it's become a bit trite over the years. People who observe Lent may tell you I'm giving up chocolate chip cookies for Lent. As if this is what I'm offering up to God. Now, I guess if chocolate chips are the idol of your life, then that's a fair thing to say, but usually it's something very simple that we're giving up that we think we can accomplish. But the purpose of Lent is actually to consider deeply the things that may have fallen out of alignment with the will of God in our lives. The idea of giving up something isn't just a mere symbol. It's to say, Christ... What has gotten off track? And in this 40-day season, I'm willing to surrender that thing and do without it so that you can put it back in alignment with where it belongs in my life. As a community, on Wednesday, we got together and we observed Ash Wednesday. And so as an outward expression of of what is happening inwardly, we put ashes on our foreheads and together we prayed ancient prayers of repentance and intercession. And that's a, that's a good thing. But what I want to do for a moment, actually for about one minute, is to do an exercise together. This isn't going to be a really long, drawn-out thing. It can't be what we're going to do is ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us in the moment. So I want to invite you for about one minute to close your eyes. Holy Spirit, reveal in this moment the area, or maybe even areas, are out of alignment. Reveal to us the areas of betrayal and temptation that have become a problem. The purpose here is to latch onto the first things that the Holy Spirit brings to mind. Turn those over in your head. Hold on to that. Consider it for a moment. Consider what it would be like to give that up to Christ. To let that go during the season of Lent. Maybe it's an obsession with a person, or with food, or with fantasy. Maybe an addiction could be anything, chemicals, television, escapism. Could be that your image of yourself is so poor that it's inhibiting the work Jesus wants to do in your life, maybe choosing to stay stuck. can even be something good that seems to be good like a preoccupation with your destiny or purpose job choices hobby choices lifestyle choices whatever the holy spirit is bringing to mind hold it there And ask yourself if you'd be willing to surrender it for this season. And if there's an internal struggle with that idea, then begin to ask Jesus what it is that you're holding on to that even he can't pry your fingers off of. All right. Open your eyes. Hold on to that thing. If you felt like the Holy Spirit brought something into your mind, hold on to it for a second. Sit it right here in your metaphorical hands and wait. Betrayal, temptation, these are, these are they're not dainty topics. We all know how this feels. And apparently, so does God. And yet his profound love for us is such that even as he's watching what he deeply loves give itself to another, and even though he seems to feel the depth of the pain of betrayal and is rocked, and we read these poems that he's inspired and we see the same kind of emotion, right? The shock, the anger you just cannot believe this, at the same time, he has a posture of love simultaneously that says, this is not over. I will not give up. I will find a way to win you back. I will find a way to your heart. So as God describes his anger, And Hosea, the poem goes on, but then I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. She will give herself to me there, as she did long ago when she was young. When I freed her from her captivity, when that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband, not my master. O Israel, I will wipe the many names of your lovers from your lips, and you will never mention them again. I will make you my wife forever showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as the Lord. Now, what kind of love is this that we're dealing with? This is like showing up to a hotel, and standing outside of a door knowing that your spouse is inside with another lover. And rather than rage and waiting for them to open the door so that you can kill them or gouge out some eyes or some other harm. Or to walk in and say, how could you do this to us? You're waiting there to say, this isn't over. I'm not giving up. I'll find a way to your heart. This isn't done. Right, what kind of love is this? That Jesus, as he's being fixed to an executioner's beam by stakes, can cry out in the physical pain of the moment, but as he's crying out in the physical pain, is crying out words of forgiveness for the people who are killing him. So Jesus, as God incarnate in the flesh, has come to reclaim what was lost, His beautiful creation in His own image. And once again, mankind is utterly rejecting Him and killing Him. And His posture is, I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to get you back. What kind of love are we dealing with here? So this thing that you're just kind of holding there in your lap, now I'd like you to, in your mind, lift that up in light of the unknowable, unthinkable Love of God and ask, really? Is this really worth that? Really? We have a God who loves us in such a way that even as we betray him, he comes for us. Even as we fall into sin, he stands there to be the one to pick us up no matter what it is we do and no matter how far it is we fall, He's present. And all we do is turn to Him and He's there to receive us back. There's nothing He won't do. There's nothing He hasn't done. What else could He possibly do to demonstrate the depth of His love for us? In 1992, an incredible thing happened. There was an athlete named Derek Redmond. He was an Olympic athlete for the United Kingdom. And he was the favored one to win the men's 400 meter. He had an interesting career because he was one of the best runners in the world. But every time he would find himself on the world stage, he'd be fighting through some kind of injury. So when he was healthy, he would beat anybody, but every time he came to the world stage, he had to fight through something. He'd never really been able to achieve his potential. In the 1992 Olympics, he was healthy, and he was favored to win, and he had disciplined himself his entire life, and it was coming down to this moment, because another four years was going to put him past his peak physical. Performance. So this was it. It had come down to this. His father had been his coach, had been his cheerleader, had been the one who had stuck through everything with him. And he's in the stands, and he's watching his son, and the race is about to begin. And Derek had said, I'd, of course, love to win the gold medal, but I just want to win a medal. My life has come down to this. I want to walk out of here saying I won an Olympic medal. All of the blood, sweat, and tears, all of the pain, all of the discipline, everything that I've sacrificed to become this athlete, everything that I am comes down to this. I want to leave here with a medal. As we move to the Lord's table, I want to show a clip of that final race and invite us to watch what that looks like, put ourselves in this position, and understand the depth of our Father's love for us.